0: We deal with money in similar ways to how we deal with passion and how we deal with love. So money, power, and love, we tend to bring the same characteristic ways of dealing with each of those. So when you think about your own money stories, think about substitute power, substitute love, and see if you see those similarities. Because rarely we know from behavior that rarely is something unique just in this area, that we, if we're not psychotic, have characterologic ways of dealing with things. So sometimes it's useful and helpful to think about putting those other words in there because it may be easier to see something from this angle than from this angle.
1: Welcome to the Healthy Love and Money podcast. If you find money to be the number one, two, or even third largest source of stress in your relationship, then you're in the right place. Going beyond how to budget, invest, and do your taxes, we're going to explore financial intimacy. Discover how to talk with your partner about your shared financial life. Let's take the awkward and painful out-of-money conversations. Join me and hit follow to listen to weekly inspiring, healing, and motivating interviews with financial therapists, couples therapists, and financial planners, and so many more. Let's go on the journey of financial intimacy together. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Healthy Love and Money podcast. Today, it's my distinct honor to welcome Marilyn Wechter to the show. She's a psychotherapist and financial therapist, and In the pre-interview conversation, she's a dynamo. She thinks through things in ways I have never even gotten close to considering, and that's why I'm so excited to have her on the show. She has years of experience working with clients and their relationship with money. So Marilyn, welcome to the show, and I'm so looking forward to this interview and hearing your wisdom and perspective on people and money.
0: Thanks, me too. I'm looking forward to the conversation.
1: Now, not every therapist specializes in working around people and money. So tell us a little bit about how did you end up coming to do this work in this area, especially?
0: So, my training was as a therapist, and I had a fairly affluent clientele, and money issues kept coming up. And so, I decided that I really needed to understand more about money and the realities of it and instruments about it. So, I started uh, to educate myself and probably in Oh, 95, maybe I really made a pivot towards working more and more with people and money with advisors, financial advisors, couples, individuals. So I kind of segued my practice to really focus on money, because to your point, there aren't that many places where people can feel comfortable talking about their relationship to money and having a space to understand their relationship to money. And even people in psychotherapy where you think, well, I can talk about anything, that therapists were often often uncomfortable talking about money or knowing how to understand or deal with people about money. So it really became my special area of focus. And I'm happy to say that now, 30 years later, there are more people in this space doing it, recognizing the importance of helping people understand their psychological relationship to money not just the black and whites of, of money and lucre.
1: Yeah, wow. It's just, it's so gratifying to meet someone that you know was ahead of the curve, ahead of their time figuring this out and bringing the lens of all the great parts of psychotherapy and therapy into the relationship with money. And yet I was laughing internally as you were talking and warming up or introducing yourself because I was thinking about this couple that just came to me that said, yeah, every time we talk to our therapist about money, her face just goes blank, and like they interpret it as she's scared and overwhelmed. And the therapist is mature and wise enough to that she finally said, "You know, you guys bring up money as an issue a lot, and I'm not really comfortable helping you with that. You need to find someone that can t- help you in that space." So that's that's a really good self-aware therapist to say, like, "This is a topic that." is beyond my own comfort. And, you know, that's kind of the benefit of therapy is being able to talk openly and candidly about things, isn't it? Absolutely.
0: And we know, for instance, if somebody comes into our office and wants to talk about sex, if the therapist is uncomfortable talking about sex, the client is not going to go there. So if the therapist is uncomfortable talking about money, the client is not going to have the freedom to talk about issues that might be really central to their dynamics But they are sensing the discomfort in their therapist or their therapist just not being aware of some of those details. So it's an interesting kind of specialty area.
1: Well, and I appreciate you bringing up the issue of sex because as soon as I heard you say that, I felt my body tied up just a little bit because, admittedly, like that's like I'm more comfortable talking about couples and sex, but like that's still a weaker spot for me. And I haven't had any real professional training on human sexuality. And so this really, you know, for listeners, what they need to know is as therapists, we get training and exposure on a lot of different topics. And that's part of what helps us get comfortable to talk about it. But if we don't get any training on a particular topic, we're no more informed than the average person. And to your
0: point as well, in our culture, as difficult as it is for people to talk about sex, it's easier for them to talk about sex than it is for them to talk about money. And so Or the therapist themselves, they may have their own issues with money that they've never been able to work out. So it then becomes harder to listen to somebody else's conflict about money because we all have fantasies about money and what money is and what it isn't and what it can do and what it can't do.
1: Oh, I love that fantasy word. That's an important one.
0: How often do we hear people say, oh, they've got so much money. What kind of problems could they have? But we have ideas about money shielding us from feelings, because if you have money, what more do you want? And I think one of the things that's so important in this topic is to understand that money is just a tool like many other tools. And again, we have the fantasy or we apply ideas that money makes you powerful, money makes you good, money makes you X, Y, or Z. And it becomes really important to decouple those ideas and understand money for what money is in the middle of a culture that values money above many other things.
1: <laughs> no small task, right? No. You know, the other no. word that was coming to mind is security. And I was just talking with another podcast guest, right? And you know, she was talking about the shame that she felt for having mental health issues while having financial success. And you talk about working with affluent clients a lot. So I'm curious, is that something that like clients struggle with is like, wait, but I'm successful on the outside. Everything looks good. Who am I to have these problems?
0: Oh, absolutely. I think that that's one element that we see. It's kind of like, I've been successful. Why aren't I happier? I've got everything that money can buy. Why do I still feel empty? And again, we kind of send these messages as a culture that all you need is money and then everything is perfect. And I think it's really important to understand that money is lovely to have and it makes things easier, but it still doesn't make you immune to the slings and arrow of everyday life and dynamics.
1: There's some things that money can protect you from, but there's a lot of things that it can't, especially psychologically, right? Like it can't protect you from the fact that maybe your mom wasn't able to be loving to you or that your dad was a terrifying individual or that your spouse doesn't understand you as deeply as you might like them to. Like
0: Or that you had money, but your parents were never available. Or that, yes, you can buy anything you want, but that you use money addictively to fill a hole that has nothing to do with those 15 pairs of shoes you just bought.
1: Ooh, let's camp there for a little bit. And this is personal for me because I have a son who is 12. So I don't think it's a problem yet, but it's the sneakerheads. This is a big thing right now in culture. And I don't want to throw stones inappropriately, but looked at it, at least through one lens, how would you, how would we understand the sneakerhead phenomenon? You know, I
0: don't know. I think that people, things become quote fashionable and then everybody has to be part of it because being not a part of it feels either shameful or nose pressed up against the glass, not feeling along with everybody else. So I, again, I think that feeling different then is a very painful experience. And it takes an incredible amount of self-awareness and confidence to be able to tolerate not doing what everybody else is doing or not having what everybody else is having, to be able to stake out one's own turf. Again, we live in a culture that rewards conformity. It doesn't really conform, uh, It reward the idea of, Figure out who you are and what works for you. Figure out what your style is and what works for you. But rather we kind of ostracize people if they don't fit into, again, our image of what 13-year-olds should be doing.
1: Oh, that's so helpful is the boundaries of the social expectations that, like, I don't know, maybe they're not all bad, right? That's part of living in society and communities. Cultures have rules for belonging and connection, but they can get too rigid, right? And so
0: it's knowing how to navigate them, how to navigate them in a way that leaves somebody feeling true to who they are. It's in some ways back to the concept of personal integrity, right? This is who I am. This is who I know I am. And the problem is adolescents have no idea who they are yet. And their role is to try on a million different things. And so there's a lot of talk right now about the impact of social media on adolescent brain development. And it's brutal because it is a form that demands everybody be perky, everybody be happy, everybody fit into a certain mold. And for an adolescent where their brain needs, everything that they're doing is about experimenting and laying down neural pathways and figuring out what fits and what I keep and what I don't keep. And if we hem that in by saying it has to be to fit within a certain parameter. We're also going against what the task of adolescence is in terms of brain development and what needs to be happening to ultimately be well-functioning adults.
1: Oh, I love being reminded of it. It's not a new concept to me, but it's a great reminder. And as people are listening, people have either raised kids through this period of time are raising kids through this period of time or will. You're in one of those three spots listening to this by and large. And so it's a powerful place to stop and reflect and think about how much space and latitude am I giving for my child to try on different identities and see how they fit and find those places because they're separating from the family identity and moving more into their own identity. And it's, it's awkward, it's uncomfortable, but it's also necessary and important. And
0: right. So take it out of the psychological context for a minute and just think about it in terms of brain science. And how the brain develops, and how the brain learns to put down new neural pathways, and to get rid of things that are no longer necessary. So, forget the feelings about it. Just think about it on a pure scientific level, and it speaks to that.
1: Oh, I love that you're bringing it there. Right? Is you know, this is there's so many layers to consider, and I love the psychological level. But you know, the more I study the brain and the brain development, and I think that one of the technical terms is what neurodevelopmental sequence is like, right. the brain grows at different stages and goes through bursts. And there's a lot that's happening. And the challenge is it's all happening internally. We can't see it, right? right. You, know, like you can see the preteen's body arms getting longer. Their clothes are smaller on their body. The shoes don't fit. But what you can't see is happening inside their brain. And the, right. the, the new neural pathways that are being connected, the old ones that are are dissipating and really the mass of the prefrontal cortex is increasing substantially during exactly. this time.
0: One could argue, it's like, oh, I don't want to see what's happening because it's a mess. We see the evidence of it being a mess in behavior. But if if you reframe it from it's a mess to there's a lot of work going on and it's really important. And we understand that watching adolescents. What I'm talking about now, what you and I are talking about, is understanding that it's going on on the molecular level as well, and that behavior is a manifestation, not just of a reaction to the external, but to the internal as well.
1: Ooh, let's just slow down on that for a moment. There's so much wisdom here. Behavior is a is a representation of what's happening internally at the molecular level, but that's also interacting with the external environment so all the friends are buying the shoes sends feedback into the brain and happens at the has neural pathway impact and then that things are happening internally that then funnel out into the behavior of the kid coming to you hey mom can i have a 100 bucks to go buy i gotta have this i can't not have this like i it's just gonna be terrible and as the adult you're thinking the last thing you need but this is me this is reflective of my own values (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the last thing you need is another pair of $100 shoes, son. I realize there are other parents that, you know, take probably the other philosophy. Like, sure, yeah, you you got to have this. And this is also, so like, this is where it ties into the financial therapy relationship with money piece is we're navigating these different developmental seasons with our kids. Our kids are making different financial requests from us. In the preteen age, they're making explicit direct requests for things. But even as babies, they they put financial expectations on us, those darn babies. I love them. <laughs> okay, I'm being a little cheeky, but you know, like I don't think like there's, you know, with each stage of raising kids there's new financial expectations and pressures that we're navigating, right? Right. And let me add,
0: with each developmental stage there are new imperatives for the parents and for the family and the world around that child to address about money and about understanding money and Being conversant with money and being comfortable with it or comfortable with not having as well, but understanding. So each phase of development requires understanding about what's the level at which you can understand this in the same way, again, that we do with sex education. You wouldn't necessarily answer a four year old's question the same way that you would answer a 10 year old's question, but you would answer it. And so when kids ask about money, you want to speak to what their developmental level is, but you don't want to avoid the conversations.
1: Because what happens when you avoid?
0: You may speak a it differently to your four-year-old when they ask about money than you would to your 12-year-old or your 20-year-old.
1: Oh, I love this. I love this. So because, and then what happens when families and culture aren't able to speak to kids? at developmental stages about money, and there's maybe, let's say, developmental gaps in money conversations. What What's the impact of that?
0: <laughs> that we have a bunch of adults who are uncomfortable with money and don't understand what money is and what money isn't, or where it fits into their lives or their self-worth. That one of the things I often talk about is that if we don't prepare the soil, whatever seeds we put in will not prosper. And so when we're talking about wanting Kids to grow into adults who have healthy relationships with money. It takes a lot of work on a parent's part to work that soil, to be able to help kids become accustomed to money. Uh, who was it? Phyllis Chesler years ago said, Only the powerless live in a money culture and know nothing about money. And we segregate our understandings about money. And because we don't talk about it, because it's, quote, not something you talk about we never really get a chance to understand the dynamics around money or the dynamics around self-esteem or the dynamics around power. And so as a therapist, what you know is when we operate blindly, we are pushed by things that we have no direct ability to impact. We're pushed by the forces rather than us being able to learn to harness the forces and use them to sail well.
1: Ooh, I love that metaphorical image is the wind the money wind is there. And the kind of the metaphorical question is, will you learn how to build a cell to capture the wind? Or will you just be blown all over the place? And then kind of decry like, oh, this wind is just so terrible. And it's like, the wind is not good or bad. It's just is. It is. It's, and the wind will continue to exist as money will continue to exist. It's always... It hasn't always existed in society, but it has pretty much always existed in society. Some medium of exchange has existed exactly. in society. Some
0: medium of exchange. The Indians sold Manhattan for what twenty-four wampums.
1: Right. I mean, yeah. And now modern day, like we're trying to use cryptocurrency as a medium of exchange. So, but our need to have something to help us give and take resources is always been needed. Will always be needed, and it's not going away. And so. I love when I'm talking with my clients, is like money is its own culture, and we can become students of it. And it's can be enjoyable when you better understand the foreign culture and you learn the language and the nuances. And oh, by the way, it's like there's different money countries and continents. And so there's differences, but we don't need to be scared of them. Well, maybe a few of them we, we do, but by and large, right? Like
0: by and large. And again, if you think about what we do. What we do is to try to help people look at things that they feel they can't look at so that they can learn how to master them so they can learn to be comfortable with it so they can learn again to use things that are available as tools. And so if we leave money out of those conversations, we are avoiding a very powerful tool that has impact on all of us, but we're not looking at it.
1: Wow. Uh so we're we're making a safe place for people to look at that, which they feel like they can't look at. And in the mind of the financial therapist, we're kind of um, trying to praise where are they at in that developmental continuum. And, you know, this mm-hmm. is something I'm thinking about when I'm talking with clients is uh, and with couples, it gets really interesting is the language system of money is pretty complex. And by and large, I'm pretty comfortable at a high level of fluency. But when you're talking with a couple, sometimes you have a partner that can speak fluent fi- personal finance. Technical side. Right. And the other person can't speak technical finance at all. And then they feel frustrated with each other because the one with the technical language has all these built in assumptions about why their position is right. And the other one then feels powerless because they're like, well, they know better. So I guess I'll just abrogate my responsibility and let you make all those decisions. You see that too. I'm not alone in that.
0: (laughs) No, you're not alone in that. And I think, unfortunately, and I'm going to be stereotypic here more often than not, it's the woman who abrogates that power. And I'm, I see this even with highly successful professional women, and I also see it both in heterosexual and homosexual couples, that there is often one person who takes the lead in terms of knowing about money, and the other for a variety of reasons that, that hopefully would start to become conscious, that person says, oh, I can't emasculate you by disagreeing with you, or I can't make you feel as if you don't know, so I'm going to acquiesce to what you say. But it gets then into the dynamics of the couple in terms of, can I know what I know, or do I have to not know in order to maintain the balance of a relationship?
1: Ah, uh, like And you know. again,
0: unfortunately, it's, it's often women who feel as if they have to not know. And again, this happens in homosexual and heterosexual couples. So I'm not meaning to say that there aren't plenty of homosexual couples where one partner says, oh, he knows. I don't know. I just take care of the flowers.
1: Right. And and you're not saying it's always the man. And No, no, I'm not at all. But there there is some real historical context for why women have been socialized to pull back or withdraw from taking financial authority in their life and deferment this is this is not just on any individual woman's shoulders this is part of a long cultural religious history that set the stage and yet we're in this modern era more of us i think are trying to find what does it mean to be have balanced power and financial authority in the relationship and you know what's interesting is being on the Male side of that, lived experience. I'm a male, identify as a male. And yet I've been subject to all the cultural narrative and story. And so a lot of times I have to help the men work on humility and creating space and being patient while their partner joins them and moves towards it. And they may never get to full equality in the language system, if you will, of personal finance. But it's like you can hold each other with equal regard.
0: Well, another way of saying that is you can look at your partner without disdain for them not knowing.
1: Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to the Healthy Love and Money podcast. I'm honored that you spend time with me listening to these incredible interviews. I love working with individuals and couples around their financial life, integrating mental health and relational well-being. I'd love to personally invite you into my financial planning practice where I do therapy informed financial planning. Bringing together mental health, relationship health, and financial well-being. If you're thinking that's the type of help you'd like, please see the show notes below to schedule your free 30-minute discovery call. And I'll look forward to seeing you and hearing more about your unique story and how I can best support you. Now, back to the show. Ooh, I like that. Really nice. Say that again.
0: That you can look at your partner without disdain, without valence, because they don't know but it puts you in, but to be aware of a position where that doesn't make you better than, it makes you have an area of expertise. And then hopefully you want to bring your partner along so they're at least conversant with you about it.
1: So I do want to try to make this analogy, redirect me if it doesn't work for you, but in sexual functioning for couples, right, there can be really big power differentials in what the range of knowledge and experience and desire that someone wants in a sexual relationship. And there can be a imbalance there as well. Do you think that that functions similar to like the money dynamic of interacting together is like one partner is very demure or small about their financiality and the other one's like expansive and expressive and wants to try all these things.
0: Yeah, no, I, I think that holds, but I think the other thing that comes into this in some ways is the role of exhibitionism between men and women and how it's different in terms of how we're socialized, that men tend, again, I'm, I'm overgeneralizing, but men tend to be much more comfortable with their own exhibitionism, with their own power, with their own look at me than women. Women are taught to move their exhibitionism, not in terms of what they do, but in terms of how they look. And so for women then to own their own power in a very direct way is threatening to perhaps what their image is of a proper woman or how they need to react to a partner. So again, there are so many cultural implications that come into this and come into our belief systems of how we can be or how we shouldn't be that unpacking it becomes helpful because then you can make decisions based on reality rather than on old messages or old internalized patterns that may not serve you so
1: well. Hmm. I'm just imagining, I don't know why my brain is just going here, Marilyn, but I'm like, I'm just imagining sitting on your couch and letting you be my therapist for a minute. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I won't put you in that position today, but it just you know, like there's, look, part of the reason why I'm on this journey and doing the work that I'm doing is there's a lot of stuff that I've been trying to sort out for myself and understand. And I've made miles of progress in the years of work. And yet, like there's a part of me that can still see like, there's there's room ahead of me to continue to grow and (laughs) develop on this. Do you think that that's generally true for most of us though, in our relationship with money is We're all on this kind of journey. Some of us are more consciously on it than others. But even when you're consciously on a journey with money, there will be new things to work through and understand as you move through life. And there will be some things that may remain mostly unresolved, no matter how hard you work at it. Is that your sense at this point?
0: Yeah, no, I agree with that. But I would expand it to say that's the issue with everything, not just money. There's always something more we can learn. And hopefully... We come to anything with an attitude of curiosity about what else is there. What more can I expand? What more can I learn about? What, what new neural pathways can I lay down?
1: Oh, yes, the neural pathways. I love them. And this circles back. I was thinking about this earlier when you were talking is like money through seeing money through this developmental lens and each life stage, we need to revisit what we know about money, how we're using money, what it means to us. And so, you know, I've had quite a number of young couples coming to me recently, you know, they're newly engaged, very close to getting engaged or just married. And they're asking me, well, how do we merge our financial life together? And I'm so honored and excited that the couples are doing that. And they're being proactive and they're thinking about it because they know this is a major source of tension in culture, but also probably in their families, they've seen it. And they're actually giving forethought to how do we do this well together? So I'm going to put that question to you. You've got a young couple, let's call them in their mid thirties. They're newly married and they're trying to figure out how do we blend our financial worlds together? What, what are some of the things that you would be talking with them about or helping them start to think through?
0: I don't know what the answer would be for that couple, but the talk would be to start talking about it. The talk would be, tell me your history with money. How do you see money? How have you worked your own finances? Has anybody helped you with it? But helping them start to explore what they really think about money and their finances so that it may be somebody is, I'm incredibly proud. I grew up with nothing and now I have quite a nest egg and I'm scared about what it would mean to pull that with this person. That's something then worth exploring in terms of what are the trust issues in that? What have you seen? What's the worst fear? So there's not one direct answer I could give you about saying this is what we would talk about. It would really be following an exploration of what role is money played for you? What did you see growing up money? that money?
1: This, this is why I love talking with therapists because, right, it's like, no, there's not an answer to give them. There's a process and it's... There's a process. There, there are some kind of go-to questions that you would start with. Right. Tell me about your experiences with money. Right. How have you experienced Tell me about your
0: history with money.
1: That one question, right? We could spend lots of time there and so much fruit there to be born. Because I think this is the thing that I've come to appreciate. I was writing about it this week is I think it was eight years ago. I got introduced to this exercise called the money egg exercise. Have you heard of this one? The money egg it's a reflective exercise, right? So you draw an oval on a piece of paper, and you draw your first money memory at the bottom of the oval, and then you draw another image of a money memory, and so on and so forth. So you fill the egg, and then you're supposed to put an emotion word next to each money memory, and then you know, the last step is well, so the money of the meaning of money in my life is, and then you fill in the blank based on. So it's a bit of a projective, and it just you. I remember learning that, and I was. Newly trained as therapist, like I get this, but I don't really get this. And so as I'm sitting here today talking with you about, I'm utterly convinced now that money memories matter a whole lot. But I think there's a lot of people that really kind of discredit that their past history with money and relationships has any real bearing on what's happening today. I'm curious about like, your your perspective on that.
0: I'm not sure how that can be separated. In all honesty, it may be that it's syntonic. In other words. That it didn't create conflict. But that doesn't mean there aren't memories and feelings about it. So that when we ask those questions, it's not necessarily what were the sticking points, but just what was it in your life? So it's not necessarily looking to pathologize the history with it. It's rather to understand what was. And so you may never have thought about it because it was easy and smooth. So what I'm asking you to do then is to think about it so you can deconstruct it.
1: I love that. I love that we're not trying to pathologize that, that you're taking a much bigger view of what was it for you? What was it? And what meaning does that then have for you? Because if let's say someone had an overall swimmingly positive experience with money growing up, and now they're partnered.
0: Doesn't feel that way. It's like, what are you stressing about money for? It's fine. It'll work out. But it never worked out for me. I lost the house. My parents lost this, lost that how can you be so sanguine that it'll work out?
1: Right. And they they have a hard time imagining. And this is the what I call the empathy gap is trying to imagine how your partner's lived experiences with money shape their expectations.
0: Exactly. Exactly. So that you might have grown up with no money, which makes it really important to you to not spend a penny and watch your bank account grow. But meanwhile, we are living on the edge because you won't spend any of the money that that you have sitting there. Well, I may be able to help look at why is that so important? And what does that mean to you to have that much money in the bank that you won't touch? You won't use it to bring in certain ease in your life because it's more important to you to have that balance. What's that about?
1: What is that about? And I had another client recently We were talking, of, working through this, and, and she was able to start identifying that, well, I'm actually not getting the medical care that I need because it, it's more important for me to have this money in the bank. And, right. you know, as we kind of started to open that up, it just kind of like, oh, 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 <laughs> I need to actually, and it's okay. And I think, you know, this is that question in my mind as financial therapist is, how do we help people move from that place of financial anxiety, fear, and shame into a, a deep embodied sense of I'm financially secure now. And to some degree, it being independent of what the numbers say.
0: Absolutely. You know, we, we all know people, oh, I'm rich. We can do anything we want. I have $2 million. And somebody will say, oh, my God, you know, I have a little bit of money, but I have to be really careful. I only have $2 million. It's all perspective. (laughs) we know that as therapists, right? Everything is how you look at it. And so our job is to really help people look at it. And then if you look at it clearly out of your adult eyes rather than your child's eyes or your history eyes, you can then make decisions that come from the most advanced part of your brain rather than your terror part of your brain. So I'm really looking to help people move into their higher functioning and not make major decisions out of fear or out of repetition of history.
1: Yeah. When you use that, you know, the history lens or the child lens, and that's, you know, it's something, you know, it's, it's so interesting to continue to work on that layer for myself and, you know, to still see like how often the child lens colors what I want to do or not do. And. In a very kind of simple way. I was like.
0: Let me add, and this we can thank the Zen Buddhists, because if you think about meditation, right, and the goal in meditation is, I mean, if you can make your mind blank, that's great. Very few of us can, but it's to watch thoughts and let them go. So in other words, things arise, I'm going to notice it, but I'm not going to stay married to it. Just as what we're doing here, it's like, I want those thoughts to arise. And then to be able to look at it and let it go. You don't have to be ruled by that fear that my family had no food, so I now have to have a refrigerator full of food that's going bad to reassure myself that I'm not in that position. You can note it. You can note it without valence or shame. And you can say, oh, I don't need to do that anymore, do I?
1: So... I've been thinking about this. It's it's kind of, the, I think the idea you're saying is we may not be able to stop those first thoughts from coming up, right? Like, I think yeah. some of us are like, I would love to stop having that thought, whatever that thought is around money or that feeling. But it's like, very few people will ever get to that point where they control those things from coming up. But more, far more realistically for most of us is to become conscious observers of the thoughts and the feelings that come up and just... Kind of watch them as if the clouds are going by in a blue sky. Say, exactly. Oh, well, that's that's interesting. I'm having this. Isn't that interesting? Yep. Isn't that interesting? So enraged that she won't let me spend money on my truck or whatever. It's like, whoa, wow! My body just got really tense, and I just got really angry that she doesn't want me to spend money on my truck or. And the, you know, this is the fill in the blank. Whatever the thing is for you, is we can be assured that we're going to have reactions to all the money topics that's a guarantee.
0: The goal is not to anesthetize you to have no feelings about things. but Which I did think beings... was the
1: goal was at one time. I did <laughs> think that that was the goal was to not feel. But you're here you know, to say that is not the case.
0: As human beings, we want to feel to the fullest, but we don't want to be just at the mercy of our emotions. We want to be able to work with them in concert with our ability to observe and to think. You know, emotion is kind of it's like if there aren't structures in place we're all id, we're all instinct we're all nothing slows us down and what we want to do is have those feelings have a rich internal life and have ways of evaluating and looking at it so that we live to the fullest not live in a way that's constricted because there's too much conflict
1: mm, i want to bring this back when you're talking about neural pathways a lot throughout the show and you know my understanding of brain development is part of the reason why kids have a hard time controlling themselves is yeah psychologically we might say it's the id or impulse control but at a neurostructure level they don't have the mechanisms to stop they don't have the ability so you know for parents i'm maybe i'm preaching to the choir because i have young kids but it's like your kid's asking you incessantly for the new toy or the new thing. There's a, a different ways to look at it. But one part is just to be mindful that they don't have the full brain mechanisms to stop and be reflective. They don't have the brain neck mechanisms to understand mom and dad's larger financial context.
0: And that's why you want to talk to them. Yes. That's why you want to have a discussion. Look at those as, oh my God, here he's asking for something again. But rather it's a great opportunity for me to talk about it. A, for me to talk about agency. If there's something you want, how can you go about getting it? So that I'm teaching them about empowerment and I'm teaching them about how to make the things happen in their life that they want to have happen. It gives me an opportunity to talk about the importance of fitting in. It gives me an opportunity to talk a little bit about what our financial realities are, again, in an age-appropriate way. It's a wonderful opportunity. And you may still say no, but it's a great opportunity to brainstorm with them. And then what you're modeling is not, you make a request, I'm going to slap it down. You make a request, let's talk about that request and where it comes from. And what are the things that are within your power to do? That's how we teach kids to be responsible, A, about money and to nurture motivation. I'm glad he wants those sneakers. Now, how are you going to get it?
1: (sighs) Whoa, nurture motivation. There's so much that we could say. You know, that's
0: one of the biggest fears for people with money, right? That if I let my kid know that we have money or if I give them money, they're going to just sit around and eat bonbons and have no motivation to do anything. If you recognize that as human beings, we are geared to have motivation. That's what the organism does. That's what we are geared on every level to do. That it our job is to nurture motivation, not to thwart it. And so often in well-meaning ways we thwart motivation in our kids as opposed to figure out how to help them harness it and take off.
1: Well there's so many high points throughout this conversation we have that are so supportive, so encouraging. And what's the last word I'm looking for? There's another really good word. I can't get it on the tip of my tongue, but excited. <laughs> I'm excited. Let me just go with intuition. What's the word? Excited. I'm excited by the way that you're framing so much of this. It, it renews my own spirit when I think about the conversations with my kids. Because I want to do the right thing. I want to have these good conversations. And as we're talking about this, there's been a few moments where I'm like, okay, there's a few times when I, I maybe there's an opportunity for me to ask my son a few more questions about. sneakers right but there's that part of me is like ah i'm so tired of talking about the (laughs) the sneakers but but in some ways i almost wonder if you get to that effective conversation that reflective conversation maybe the conversation about the sneakers doesn't just keep coming up because it's scratched the itch it's helped them get and communicate what it is that they're really trying to go for right because it's rarely just about the sneakers right oh yeah it's it's about and not about the sneakers. It's about you know social belonging and status right. and trying right. things out right. and, and the different identities. And the very pragmatic in me is like, oh, we just bought those. You only wore those like five times. Like, I don't, you know, so just working with my own money story. So anyhow, right. uh, <laughs> Marilyn, this has been such a, a rich and dynamic conversation. Is there another area that we haven't talked about that we should talk about before we bring this conversation to a close? Oh, there are so many, but I I don't know how to bring it. Let me say one thing in, in ending, okay, that I find
0: really useful, that we deal with money in similar ways to how we deal with passion and how we deal with love. So money, power, and love, we tend to bring the same characteristic ways of dealing with each of those. So when you think about your own money stories, think about substitute power, substitute love, And see if you see those similarities. Because rarely we know from behavior that rarely is something unique just in this area. That we, if we're not psychotic, have characterologic ways of dealing with things. So sometimes it's useful and helpful to think about putting those other words in there. Because it may be easier to see something from this angle than from
1: this angle. Yeah. And the word you use the word passion. I think that's a really interesting. I'm gonna be chewing on that one because do I allow myself to be passionate about money? And do I really allow myself to be passionate about love? Or is there always this little bit of guardedness? Like, I really want to be passionate about money, but I'm like a guard it. I really want to be passionate about loving my wife, but I'm like guard it because I might get a little hurt. And so like I think I'm hanging the hook on passion. That's my word, not for everyone, but your point about let's take the time to continue to look from different vantage points and see what we can see. It's like looking in a prism and each time we rotate the prism, we get to see the beautiful rainbow slightly differently. It creates more options. So, Without judgment. Ooh, that's the real trick, isn't it? Sure. Marilyn, if what you've been sharing and people are listening and saying, wow, I love what Marilyn's saying. I want to connect with her. I want to find out more about her work. How do people find you? What's the best way to connect with you? I have a very
0: out-of-date website. (laughs) (laughs) And it's simply MarilynWechter.com.
1: That's great. Well, and I take that because I imagine as a practicing professional, you have a very full client load. You, You get to work with a lot of clients. And so if someone reaches out, you'll do your best to respond. And
0: as you're aware, I feel really strongly about this topic. And I feel really strongly about living in a world where people are mindful rather than mindless. And so this becomes one area where I can be of help to people.
1: I love it. Because that's the
0: world I want to live in, right?
1: Yes, we're trying to create the world we want to live in. And both of us, definitely more mindfulness, especially around money and, and the way we dance with it. So thank you so much for your thoughtfulness and warmth around the topic of money. My pleasure. I invite you now to stop for five or 10 minutes and reflect on what you just heard. Maybe even journal about it. Give yourself the time to consider what you just heard and what it means to you. By giving yourself the time to reflect and integrate what you just heard, it will help you along your journey of learning, healing, and growing towards financial intimacy in your life. Please like and follow this podcast and share with someone that would benefit from being on the journey of financial intimacy. Wishing you healthy love and money. Ed.